Welcome back to the non-standard 14er podcast. The podcast talks about everything the root description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. We're talking about Rainier, which is not in Colorado, but, but it is a Colorado perspective of hiking a glaciated peak. We got the uh, mongoose rejoining the podcast. Yo, thank you, Chris. It's uh, great to see you again. No, it's really an honor to be uh, to be back. And I also want to congratulate you on uh, this podcast is really taking off. And your first podcast, your your first episode has had more than like 280 80, uh, downloads. So it's like the third rightest third highest podcast of our downloaded basically i think that's just my mom listening to it every day <laughs> <laughs> we have joining the podcast is walk mode patrick walk mode here present also joining the podcast is the exile michigander from salt lake it is always a pleasure to represent utah it's great to be here and yeah thanks for the invite stifler it's Fun talking with you guys about the Colorado mountains. It brings back a lot of memories for me. So, the Mongoose talked to me earlier this week about how we want to center this conversation around like we are. There are a ton of experts in Seattle and but no Rainier, but we're Coloradans who've done the 14ers, and it's our perspective or your perspective. I haven't done it on Rainier. And that's kind of the kind of the central theme of the podcast. And Sean, have you you climbed Rainier? Yep. I did it together, okay. so. Oh, okay. You guys are on the yeah. same team. Mm-hmm. I see. You pooped on the same rope together. That's right. <laughs> you know, we, pooped, we pooped on the same uh, Camp Mira poop conveyor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, <laughs> was fortunate enough. I brought home my blue bag as a souvenir and didn't have to use it because of oh, nice. convenient Camp Mira timing, which. which What's a blue nice. bag? Mongoose? I guess we can talk about that. In <laughs> so we're going to start off with poop. We're gonna, <laughs> how do you poop on a glacier? Like that should be the first. No, I don't think we should start with that. But um, yeah, it's definitely something we should talk about. A blue bag is, so basically on Rainier, you have to pack out your own feces. Um, and there's two that I'm aware of designated pit toilets. Uh, one is at Camp Muir and the other one is it's a Camp Mitchell. It's over on the Emmons Glacier. And if you make it to there, you can actually like leave it in the pit toilet. But anywhere else, you got to bag it and bring it back down. So it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, something that's always on your mind, I guess. Yeah, that, you know, that's that is a good it's a good thing to, to, to talk about because it's your bodily functions happen. And and I think, uh, you know, at Camp Mirror, yeah, you see these bathrooms. and You're like, yeah, that's that's kind of cool that you can you know, take care of your business there. And hopefully you don't have to use the wag bags or the blue bags. And, but if you think about defecating in snow is it's in a glacier, especially it's going to stay there. And then you see what's happening with Denali these days. And it's, you know, when the melt off comes and all the human feces comes running down the mountain, it's pretty disgusting for, for everybody. And uh, so definitely easier to just pack it out. And then same with uh, urinating at Camp Muir, you know, Sean and I, we're talking about our buddy that, that we went with. Um, he's like, don't pee in the snow there because that's your drinking water. Because <laughs> there's, I mean, obviously there's no running water up that high. It's all snow melt. So don't pee in the snow, uh, in the snow at Camp Mirror and, and pack out your poo. <laughs> just let it go. I just feel like we didn't even get like five minutes into the podcast and then it, then 
we were talking about poop and then so may, maybe we could like hit reset here and and uh <laughs> try to get some people on the mountain <laughs> Right, this Rainier podcast brought to you by Emodium AD. <laughs> so did we get did we get like pranked here where we like <laughs> thought we were gonna climb? <laughs> we, we I thought we were gonna talk about ice axes. It is all right. Let's let's, let's rewind. Let's reset. Mongoose, when did you climb Rainier? Okay. What was your experience? Oh. When did you climb Rainier? Uh, I climbed it in July of 2014. And I had um, just finished the 14ers uh, the year before and picked out a couple, you know, good climbing friends, Greg Miller and Ryan Richardson. Ryan's been on your show, I think, a couple times. Yeah, and we, you know, we started practicing, started reading some books. We took a crevasse rescue class and we spent most of the spring, you know, getting ready, doing rope work, planning practice trips. Uh, and then went up in July and had a great weather window and a successful summit up the Disappointment Cleaver. And it was a fantastic, fantastic trip. I want to get back to the topic of like preparation and as far as, uh, you know, cross rescue, Cressic Knots, Glacier Travel. But I want to hear like, how many days does it take? It's not like you wake up at 3 a.m. and you pick up Pat, uh, you know, block away and you drive up to Long's Trailhead and you do... Long's a meeker in, in a day from, from Denver. What is the preparation days travel? Is it, is it a week? Is it five days? Is, is it three days? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, so depending on what route you take, there, there's a number of routes of Mount Rainier. Um, the two, you know, beginner routes or the easiest ones are the Disappointment Cleaver, which is probably the most popular, and the Emmons Glacier. And the the primary difference is the disappointment cleaver route, the first kind of morning or 4,000 feet, you don't have to rope up because it's a snow field. And then when you get halfway up, you rope up for the second part. From Emmons Glacier, you're on a rope the entire way. So the route's a little less technical, but you're on rope the whole time. And then I'd say, I mean, you're gonna fly to Seattle, you can pack two bags on Southwest Airlines, you're gonna have to rent a car, you're going to drive down to Rainier. You're probably going to want to spend the night somewhere or camp. Then the next day, go up the Muir Snowfield, set up camp at Camp Muir. Sometime that night, you're going to climb, you know, early morning or all night, and you're going to summit sometime around sunrise and then come back to Camp Muir. And then uh, we chose to stay an extra night in Camp Muir just for fun, but you could come down that next day. So you could do it within like 48 hours. You do a four-day weekend for them. Yeah, I mean, I would throw in an extra day for weather or if something goes wrong. But, yeah, I mean, you could do, I'd say five days. I'd say give yourself three days on the mountain. You got one weather day and then two days traveling. Uh, I mean, also, you know, you're in a beautiful area. Seattle's awesome. Tacoma's awesome. I mean, you could link it up with a bunch of other sightseeing and and other fun stuff too. But yeah, if, if I would say if you're pressed for time, you could do it in five days. I don't know. What do you think, Pat? You know, when we were, when we were planning ours out, uh, we, we allotted five days uh, as well, but I, I actually have, I have an aunt that lives out in, uh, you know, outside of Seattle. So we, we were kind of planning on, you know, having a day to check out Seattle and, and do some other stuff. So you can do it. I mean, you can do it as quick, as quick as you want. I mean, we, 
we flew in, Sean, myself, um, it was three of us, everybody, John, and we, we flew in and there was a system moving in because we did it uh, this summer, August, uh, like right on the first of August and there was a system moving in. So he decided to move it up. So we actually flew in, rented the car. This is a COVID year, obviously it's a little different. So um, nobody was renting cars. There was nobody in the airport, um, nobody on the, on the roads. It was actually really easy until we got to the park, which if you're trying to get into a, the national park on a Saturday, just an FYI, man, it took us like an hour to get into the park, a line of cars. And we actually started climbing that day we flew in. And the only reason is because Sean and I are very acclimated. So was John, the big mountain guy. So we, we were ready. You know, we weren't worried about altitude or acclimatization or anything like that. So we, we landed in the morning, drove, got into the park. Um, we started, uh, Sean, what was it, like 4 noon, 3 o'clock, somewhere like that. We started climbing up the Camp Mir and we got there right around, I think it was like 4 and we got there right around 8. You know, and as Nick said, it's, it's just snow field. So I was in trail runners and shorts all the way up to Camp Mir. Some people had traction on. That's, you know, a personal preference. Um, and then, you know, we were up in the morning, summited, and we did the full descent and the whole 9,000 feet um, the next day. And we were out standing, you know, Sean and I just kind of trudged around the park for the next couple of days. So, I mean, you, you could conceivably do it in two days if you really wanted to push it. But, you know, when you're doing something as magnificent as Mount Rainier, uh, you know, taking your time is, is definitely recommended from my side. That was a crazy thing. I think Pat is like, had we known exactly what the weather was exactly how we would, you know, acclimate to the mountain, we could have done it in 48 hours. <laughs> you know, we planned this longer trip thinking that we'd have to have a day to wait for weather and all that, but we could have like, we could have flown in, flown out in 48 hours and, and got the summit if we would have timed it the way we did. It was just lucky. Yeah. If you know, if you're in good shape or, and you're, uh, you know, we were, I think we definitely felt it. We felt that little bit of jet lag. It's not super terribly long flight, but you know, just that But travel is always tiring to me. And you know, you're going from a plane to a car and then sitting in line. And, but I think your adrenaline is just, it's just rolling through your veins so fast that you're just, you know, that first day, it wasn't until we got to Mira where it's like, okay. Um, you know, I actually didn't actually really start getting tired until we were trying to set the tent up in like 40 mile an hour winds. And what elevation is Mira? 10,000, 10,000 something. It's, but what you, what's the trailhead elevation then? Like 5,400, I think at Paradise. Yeah, you, you start basically at Denver elevation, and then Camp Muir is 10,080 feet. So, Pat, you guys uh, flew in, and then you hiked up the Muir on one day, and then the next day you hung out in Camp Muir until the evening when you started? Or oh, no. We, we weren't smart enough to do that. <laughs> we, we got off the plane. I, I got there a couple hours earlier than Patrick and John. So I had time to eat like a leisurely breakfast at a Denny's. Um, and then I picked them up and then we drove straight to the trailhead and started hiking, made it up to Camp Muir. Uh, Patrick and I set up our tent. We'll have to have a whole 
discussion about setting up the tent in these like crazy ass winds that are up there. And I bet yeah. Pat, I, if we if we both had like forty minutes of sleep, that would have been a miracle. I don't maybe forty five, but we had almost no sleep. Woke up and uh, started hiking that day and made it to the summit. Yeah, basically twenty four hours after we landed in Seattle, we were on the summit of Rainier. You know, we we went to bed. I think we were we were at Camp Mirror right around eight eight thirty. So it was about four four and a half hours to get there. We were moving pretty good, and you know, yeah, the winds unreal. Uh, there was like nobody there. There was only two groups because again, it's COVID. So um, one of the really cool things about about that, and I'm not gonna say COVID is cool because this is a, it's a pretty you know it's a it's a tragedy what's happening, but. Um, is that, you know, the disappointment Cleaver this year was, was like a Mountaineers route. There was no, uh, the routes weren't marked, you know, nobody had really even been on none of the guide trip had, had trips go up the mountain until late July. So, um, we got our own adventure in and, um, yeah, we, I think we were asleep by like 1130 and you could hear those other guide groups getting up at 1215 and we're like, ah, crap. And then we hit, we started out, I think about two, three in the morning. So. Yeah, somewhere between forty minutes and two hours of sleep on and off was about all we got. It was it was literally like <laughs> right at the time that we got into our sleeping bags and we're ready to like fall asleep is when the people started waking up and making all this noise, getting ready to go to the other camps. Like we had we had no sleep that night whatsoever. That that seems to be a reoccurring theme is not getting a lot of sleep. Is isn't there bunk beds in, in camp? camp here? And uh, so there is a, a shelter that was built in like the 1920s. Um, that's like a, a stone shelter that is open to the public and they do have bunks in there. Um, I would recommend bringing a tent and not sleeping in it because you don't know who's going to come walking in at what hour, or there might be 30 people show up and all want to stay there. Um, but it is kind of a nice fallback plan, emergency shelter, or if the weather's really bad, people go in there and cook. But Camp Mirror also has, we talked about the pit toilets. We talked about this shelter. There's also a, a ranger cabin there. or a, a, Yeah, it's basically a stone cabin. Um, so it's kind of like a little community. But I, I would definitely recommend bringing your own tents and not staying in the shelter. But I, I was always amazed by, you know, for us, there's kind of these two differing views. Some people bring like next to nothing and they go super light. And that's probably what people do on most of the other routes. We actually brought a big tent and a lot of stuff because our thoughts were, you know, we had spent the night at the base of Rainier in the hotel. And then we hiked up in the morning and then just hung out and napped in the afternoon and then climbed at night. Um, so we brought a lot of extra weight, a lot of extra food so that we'd be, you know, really comfortable in Camp Muir. But some people, I mean, I remember seeing I remember seeing some guy like hiked up and he just like laid on the snow and took a nap for like an hour or, and then like, just, you know, when we started roping up in the middle of the night, you know, he just woke up and started tying in with his team. So uh, that sounded miserable to me, but people are all doing stuff like that. So what time did you get to Camp Muir, Mongoose? Uh, we left Paradise, which is, you know, at the base where you can drive, to um sometime around like eight or nine in the morning and we just took our time going up 
and got to Camp Muir early afternoon, set up our tent, and then kind of lounged and napped, like I said, for a while. Um, and then we began climbing at 11 p.m. Uh, it was a little warmer than usual, or maybe what is now the new normal was unusual back then. Um, so that was it. But it's kind of a different world. I mean, I don't really know of any place. I, I guess there are places in Colorado where everybody goes and camps, like Lake Como is pretty crazy. Um, you know, Snowmass Lake can be kind of crazy. But it was it was like a bustling little city there, and you just kind of show up, and there's there's a bunch of guides, and there's people who have been. I mean, you got park rangers running around, you have guides leading their groups. You also have like little training classes going on. So there's people who've never been on a mountain before, and they're getting a crash course before you know they go up with their guided group. So it's kind of a fun place to to hang out, and a lot of different people from all over the place. Uh, unless you went this year, then it sounds like you had the whole place to yourself. But Camp Muir is like the elevation of like the park ranger station at the, at the trailhead of Longs, right? I mean, you still got a four. four yeah, I think it's like ten four. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. It's ten thousand and eighty feet. I looked it up. Yeah. There's you have to camp at Muir. There's nowhere to camp below that. You're not allowed to. And you got to have a permit to climb above Camp Muir. So you got to be with a guide group or with somebody who's, um, you know, able to pull those permits. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you know, the way Nick explained his, his um, experience was sort of how I assumed ours was going to go, you know, because that's all you've read about going up to is like, okay, there's going to be a whole mountainside of, of people you're going to talk to and, 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 rangers and yeah there wasn't there was no rangers there the uh the shelters were all closed the bathrooms were open um but you weren't allowed in the shelters so that's that was something we had to keep in mind was making sure that the weather was going to be right uh that we had to bring some really extra cold weather gear because there was no way to get into those shelters um um, we did bring some heavier gear uh but again uh you know these days most gear is pretty lightweight comparison to what it used to be and I wouldn't say my pack was any more than 40 pounds going up, maybe 45 at the most. You're not carrying water like, um, like you do on a lot of, uh, you know, trips in Colorado, uh, you know, and then your summit day, it's you emptying most of the stuff out of your pack and you're wearing most of the stuff. So we were up and down. I can't imagine my pack weighed more than 15, 20 pounds, but it's, I mean, it's a haul and you don't want to pack too much because it is, it's a, you know, it's a tough climb. It's takes, takes physically fit individual to, you know, to pull that off in that amount of time, because it's, you know, it's not just a regular 14 or there's nothing like this in Colorado. There's no glacial travel here. Uh, that mountain, especially when you fly in, you'll see it and it's so much bigger. It's, there's nothing that big here. That is a big, big, big mountain volcano actually, but it's just, your heart just starts to flutter when, when you see it from the plane. I just remember like, and I go there every summer, you know, to visit family and it's every time you see it, just like just stirs something in your soul. Yeah. Yeah. To just echo on what Pat said. I mean, in Colorado, every time you climb a 14 er you look out and you see more 14 ers you know, so the, the relief of what you climb is, 
I don't know. I a little bear is pretty big relief, but I mean maybe five six thousand feet max. And so you know Rainier being a volcano and Mount Shasta's in California, Northern California is a, a another volcanic mountain. There's nothing around it. Like you're standing on top and you're looking down at sea level at the ocean. So there's fourteen thousand feet of relief. So it just feels like so much more of a mountain. And I don't know about you, Pat, but like we were on top for sunrise and to watch like the the shadow of the mountain reflect out on the ocean and just be this like giant pyramid was just it was just mind blowing. I I had never experienced anything like that. Yeah, we were we were on the summit for sunrise because we started uh, a little after two in the morning, but we were we were past the cleaver um when the sun was coming up and it's just like the views i can only imagine we didn't we didn't see the giant the shadow i've seen pictures of it it's pretty incredible and um but the the views like you said it's up there it's you see you can see baker and um i mean just every single every single volcano in the region you can see mount st helens off in the distance and uh, it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, just the view is incredible. So when do you get on the glacier? Is Camp Muir on the glacier or not? Camp Muir is just off the glacier. So you're not roped up at all? No. Camp Muir is kind of in the last stable portion so that they can have buildings last 100 years. And then once you get past that, so here's a, here's a map that kind of shows the breakthrough. Um, so this is the Muir Snowfield. I realize that people listening can't really see this, but you hike up the Muir Snowfield to Camp Muir, which is right around 10,000. And then just past that is the Cowlitz Glacier, uh, which is an active glacier. And then you go through Cathedral Gap, and then you get up on the Ingraham Glacier. And so up in Ingraham Flats is another place where people camp. There's no structures up there, but it's around 11,000 feet. And so, you know, you're giving up a lot of the luxuries of Camp Muir, but you're also 3,000 feet below the summit instead of 4,000 feet. So that's a, an appealing option for a shorter summit day. Um, I, I would probably recommend staying in Camp Muir. I think it was, it was a nice, comfortable place. If you go up the Ingraham Flats, you have to rope up. And so now you got 50 pound packs and you're, you know, you're roped up as you go through there. Where Camp Muir, you can all just kind of show up at your own pace and then set up camp. How steep, how steep is that? Like, it looks like when you go through the Cathedral Gap, it looks like really steep, like cool war climbing. I don't know. Pat, how, what would you rate it as? I, I remember it being pretty steep, but it's been a few years. Like compared, compared to, like, the Emma Chutes on Democrat when we were cramponed up the Emma Chutes to the summit of Democrat. Is it that steep? Um, yeah, I mean, there's the thing is, you're. I think that you're you're hitting those those angles. You're still getting those, um, you know, forty degree somewhere in there. I, uh, but you know, you're you're switchbacking a lot too, so you're not going straight up it like you would a couloir. Um, so because a lot of especially, I mean, it depends on the snow year too, and and where you know where those crevasses are opening up and if you have to end around and we got, we were pretty fortunate this year. They have what they call January there and, and just dumped snow and 
Um, so, you know, there were, um, of course, tons of crevasses, but we didn't have to end around a whole lot. We got to go direct because usually uh, my understanding is that there's three routes off of the cleaver, you know, left, middle, and, and, and to the right. And, you know, you take left early, early season if you can, but it's a little more, you know, there's a little more dangerous racks and things like that. And straight up the center, of course, is the quickest route. And then around the right is, is when you have to end around a lot of these, these big crevasses that start to form as the summer uh, moves in. So uh, we got to go straight up and it, it got steep in a lot of spots, but you're, you know, you're kind of zigzagging your way up. And um, if you go there in a normal year, they have, you know, flags up marking the route and, and they've, you know, they've, some places in there where you can, you can actually clip in if you want, but you know, I, I never saw the need to, to use any of those, but I can see having a larger group that, you know, you'd want that. It was only three of us in our, in our group. So. So why is it called the disappointment cleaver? Yeah, the cleavers, you know, they, they cleave, they cleave glaciers in half basically. So it's this chunk of rock that, you know, as the glacier comes down the mountain, it basically splits it in two. So that's why they call it a cleaver cleaves the glaciers um and yeah i guess disappointment I, I assumed it was because when you get there you still got a long way to go you know, you're looking at like you know almost three thousand feet i think right um a little bit less than that i guess 20 2500 feet from the cleaver to go looks like forever when you're looking when you're at the top of the cleaver looking up it looks like forever to get to the top and can you tell distance from there or are you just looking at a bunch of white like if you stand at like Summit Lake from an echo on, you know, Evans, you can kind of see the rock and kind of see the trail. Compare that to what you're looking at from Disappointment Cleaver to the summit of Rainier. So for me, looking up from the Cleaver, it's just as far as you can see is snow and you can't see the actual summit because the summit kind of rolls over to the crest. So you can't actually see the summit. You see kind of a, I guess you, I don't know, Fall summit's probably not even the right word. You just, just kind of see where it rolls over. And it just looks like, you know, miles and miles and miles of snow climbing that you have to do from the cleaver up. And I got, um, as, you know, we'll probably get into this later, but um, for about 750 vertical feet, maybe from above the cleaver, because I was feeling pretty strong uh, through the cleaver, got to the top of the cleaver, felt pretty good. And then about 750 feet or so above the cleaver, you have these crevasses that were kind of interesting to go around. But then above that, you have like 1,500 feet of basically just this long, uninteresting snowfield. There's not really any crevasses after that to speak of. You know, there's smaller ones, but nothing major. And it's just this slog. And that's what killed me was that like 1,500 feet of just can't see the end snowfield where you're just slogging up this thing. That's where I really kind of hit the wall for me. I was just gonna say, remember that like, like you're doing most of this in the dark. So when you look up, <laughs> you're looking in the darkness or at least that's how it was for our group. The things that really stood out to me was kind of the difference of the mentality of a Colorado climber versus someone from the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, we're used to the elevation. Uh, most of the people who are on this route were coming from Seattle. So they're coming from sea level. So they're gaining 14,000 feet, like almost in a day or in two days. 
where for us, like, you know, we feel fully acclimated. You know, what, what was strange to me was a lot of the people talked about, they were really concerned about going up Disappointment Cleaver. And they're like, you got to walk on rock with your crampons on. And so a lot of people are like, that's the most challenging part is you, you're on this mixed snow rock and you got to use your crampons. Um, and I found that section actually to be not very difficult. It was, it was a lot like doing a winter 14er uh, going up quandary or something like half time you're on rock, half time you're on snow. But what was most challenging for us was we had never worked as a, a rope team. So, you know, roping up, tying in, making sure, um, you know, we all move together as a team and a unit. That was really challenging. That to me was the hardest part and the thing we had really trained the most on. And that's what people in the Pacific Northwest have been doing, you know, their whole, their whole climbing career. So that to them was easy um, and was really hard to us. But then you get on the cleaver, that was easy to us and hard for them. And then the elevation felt good for us. So it, it, was, a, it was kind of a strange you know, what they considered hard felt easy and what we considered hard was easy to them. Let's talk about that. And then uh, I guess another thing to consider is how you set up your rope team. You want to, ideally you'll go with three or four people. And the reason is that if you have three, the person who's most likely to fall in a crevasse is the person leading. And then you have two people to self-arrest and try to stop the fall. And then one of them can hang on their ice axe and the other one can start, um, you know, pulling out a, a snow picket and start building an anchor if you need to. Where if you only have two people, I would not recommend going with two people your first time. Um, obviously, ice climbers and more experienced people do it. Um, and if you have four people, it's actually good because if someone gets sick or has to bail at the last minute, then you can still go with three. You're going to move a little slower traveling as four, but but you also kind of have, you're less, re if you get up to Camp Muir and somebody gets sick or has a migraine or something, like you can still go where when you go with three, everybody has to pull the load. And there's a lot of, I felt a lot of pressure. Um, I think we all did because it's not like in Colorado, if we get halfway up and it's like, hey, I'm not feeling good, you guys go ahead. Um, when you're tied to those guys, like they got to go down with you. You know, so you don't want to be the one to mess it up um, and you want to be on your A game. And so I think everybody's kind of feeling that pressure. And so, you know, especially with three guys, like there's no room for error. Like no one gets to take the day off or or gets the bail. Um, Pat, Sean, I'm sure you guys felt a lot of those same things. Yeah, I felt I, I was definitely the last 1500 feet or so. I was the def, definitely the weakest link. Um I felt pretty fatigued. I don't know if it was a lack of sleep or that I wasn't as acclimated as John and Pat, but um, I kind of felt like they were dragging me up the last 1500. I was really slowing them down. So that I felt guilty because of that, which kind of sucked. But the other thing is the, um, the thing that surprised me, I think that I would have never not realized was how difficult it is when you're on a rope. Like if you're just going straight up, it's no problem. But when you add switchbacks, that surprisingly complicates things because you have to give, you know, I was on the, the end of the rope team. So you have to make sure you're giving people enough slack so that they can kind of go around the uh, switchback and turn properly.
but you also don't want to give too much slack because then they're you're feeding all this rope out. So that was, I don't know, and I, I think Patrick feels the same way. Like getting around the switchbacks was surprisingly um, complicated, roped up. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, this is my first, this is my first rope team uh, experience. So I, I thought it was, you know, when we're talking about, of course, John's, you know, Superman. So he's, he's in the front and he's climbed right here, like 35, 40 times, whatever it is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 155 pounds, you know, and, and so I'm the lightest. And uh, so I think we felt like, you know, Hey, maybe I'd be in the middle and, you know, of course, John's going to lead. And then, uh, you know, Sean, Sean will be in the rear. And, and I think is learning the dynamic of each spot of that rope, rope team, I think would be important because you can, you can understand, you know, when somebody starts walking around, um, that switchback, you know, that rope is going to move to the inside. Of course, you never want to step on the rope and, and you have to be cognizant of where that rope is behind you and in front of you when you're in the middle. Uh, if you're leading, of course, it's, you know, you're setting the pace and you don't want to go too fast or, or too slow. So the rope, you know, so you're minding the rope. And there was a couple of times I know around some of those switchbacks that I, I think I definitely tried to yank Sean off the mountain <laughs> where I was like, I'm just keep on cruising. And I feel a yank. I'm like, okay, I have to remember like that rope moves to the inside when you turn around the corner and I have to, in the middle, I have to step over it. So it's, it is, it is good to practice it. And it's, and it's good to like look at it from what if I was at the back of the team? What if I was at the front of the team? Uh, what if I'm in the middle Oh, how would I be comfortable with that rope? And, and that communication is super important. And I think on the way down, you know, Sean was really good about being vocal, like, Hey, this is, this would make me feel more comfortable if he did this. And, and, and I understood that. And, and John was awesome. And, and I never felt the rope pull. I never felt slack. He was just born to lead, you know? So it was a super, super cool dynamic, but the rope team is, it is, it's your climbing partner plus one. So you're climbing partners and um, your life is in their hands and their lives are in your hands. And, and, you know, if everybody stays focused and listens to one another, then you're going to have a, a hell of a time. Well, you know, Pat, when you, when you talk about the life being in your hands, your partner's lives being in your hands, that was really, I guess I had a, maybe a utopian vision of what these crevasses would be like. I kind of thought like, Oh, they're like, you know, like 30, 40 feet deep and, you know, not that big of a deal. These things are bottomless. They're, I mean, you look down one of them and it, your heart will just start racing. And so, you know, when, you, when you're up there and sometimes you're like 200, 250 feet above a crevasse and you're, and you're looking down at it as you're hiking up and you're like, okay, well, if one of us slips here, plenty of time, I can roll over, I can self-arrest, I could stop you know, my, my two climbers with me, no problem. But sometimes you're like 20 feet above a, a huge gigantic crevasse and you're walking along it and you're thinking, okay, if I slip here, if anybody slips here, I don't think I have enough time to get an ice axe in before I'm pulled into that crevasse with everybody else. So that like, you're, I'm, I was always thinking the whole time about Patrick and John, like, okay, like these, like, I got to be Johnny on the spot right now. Cause if one of them falls, I have 
0.025 milliseconds to get my ice axe in and try to self-arrest. And so that, I think, really amps up the stress compared to your typical 14er where, you know, kind of everyone's on their own, right? You're not tied in. So even on the most dangerous 14er in Colorado, you know, if, if you fall, you're probably <laughs> not affecting anyone else. You know, it's just you that's going to fall. But on this, it was like, okay, if I fall or if they fall, we're all in on this together. So that, for me, definitely ramped up the stress a little bit. And are you climbing with your ice axe in your hand the whole time above Camp Mir? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to be ready to self-arrest at any moment. And, and you might feel perfectly comfortable where you're at and someone behind you takes a fall. And, you know, one of the things uh, I, I want to stress that if you're considering doing this trip, you can kind of go two ways. You can do it unguided as we have, or you can take it guided. And if this is all new to you and, and you want to learn some new skills, I'd recommend going guided. Um, it's a great way to learn. But um, unguided, we took a one day course on crevasse rescue. Um, there's a number of groups in Colorado that'll teach you. Um, but one of the crazy things is you're wearing your rock climbing harness or a similar harness, and then you're tied in. But your whole life, every time I've been in a harness, it's always at the gym or, you know, top roping. And so you always sit down with the rope holding you up. And that's how harnesses are made. And they're pretty comfortable. You know, you sit back or you repel down. Um, when you have to self-arrest, the rope is actually pulling in the other way. So when your partner falls in a crevasse or if you're in training, he might jump off a cliff or something. It's like, it's like you're tied into the rope and you tie the rope to a truck that goes by like 60 miles an hour. And so all of a sudden, like you just get this like hip pull that just rips it out. And so you, you're trying to recover and you get your ice axe in and you do yourself a rest, but the rope is pulling down on your harness instead of like pulling, instead of sitting into the harness, it's pulling down. And it's this extremely uncomfortable like position on your hips and your pelvis. And you're sitting there like trying to hold that, but it, it's a very strange feeling just to get kind of ripped off your feet and to try to hold it there for your partner. So it's a, it's a very different world. But that didn't occur to you on Rainier. You obviously trained that weird thrusting self-arrest position. Yeah. I mean, we went over it and over it, you know, preparing. So we did our, our one day crevasse rescue class. Um, we went through a organization called the Colorado mountain school. They're up in Estes park and we went into Rocky mountain national park. And so what the guy did was, or what our teacher did was put the three of us on a rope and then tied to a tree just to be safe. And so the guy in the middle, like Ryan literally jumped off a cliff, you know, a couple feet and I'm standing there in the middle just to feel like, you know, uh, um, they do it. You can go up to Loveland pass and you can do it off of uh, cornices. You know? What's, what's Ryan's thoughts. Does it, is it hard to convince yourself to just willy nilly throw yourself off a cliff? Like, is there a mental psych up to, uh, I mean, you know, I, I say he jumped off the cliff. I, I think he kind of slowly stepped down. <laughs> but I think he, he wanted to make it real. 
And uh, I wish he would have just gone gradually the first time, but he wanted to try to simulate a real fall. <laughs> like, how would you train for that if you didn't pay for a guided class, Mongoose? Would you go to St. Mary's Glacier and rope up? And Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we did that afterwards. So, you know, there's a lot of books and there's some great YouTube videos out there. Uh, and a lot of the groups up on Rainier actually have videos showing how to simulate it. But uh, one of the best things we did, it was Greg Miller's idea, was the weekend before our trip, we did a uh, practice trip. And we went to St. Mary's Glacier and we packed everything we would pack for the trip. And we hiked up St. Mary's, I don't know, for a mile or two. And then we set up our tent. We did everything. And then we practiced, you know, roping up like we would in the morning. And that was really a great way to just test out all the gear. I mean, this is the only trip I've been on where I had an Excel spreadsheet and put every piece of gear in the weight and, <laughs> and like came to that level of efficiency. I mean, I'm usually like, the night before a climb in Colorado, I'm just grabbing my bag and, oh yeah, I need this, need this, need this. So it was a kind of a different level of, of packing, but it's, you're limited in the space you have in your pack and, you know, the rope weighs a lot and you're carrying these snow picks and ice axes. And so you, you do have a lot of weight. And so you really don't have much room for extra things, especially like once you leave camp, you're, everything needs to be pretty fine tuned. The other thing that we did not practice was uh, we roped up, we walked around. We didn't practice doing that in the dark. And we had always kind of done it in the daylight. And ah. so then when we're actually roping up at 11 p.m., I'm like, man, this is a lot harder in the dark when my hands are cold. And so that took us a little bit of time to figure it out. But So you talked about you know, self-resting, the person that falls in the glacier needs to throw his, the other person needs to throw their ice axe in. Did you practice pressing knots and being able to scoot your way up a rope if you're the one that's dangling in a crevasse? Yeah. Yeah, we certainly did. So basically what happens is if, just for our listeners, so in a situation where one person falls in, it's most likely to be the lead, the leader, the first person on the rope. Uh, the next two guys are going to self-arrest, hopefully. If they don't, all three of you are going to go in the crevasse, and that's probably going to be the end of your climbing career. But assuming those two guys self-arrest, then the climber who is in the crevasse, if you are non-injured, which you most likely will be, you pull out these prussics, and they're basically like, they're like smaller pieces of rope that you tie into the rope. And you can climb your way up the rope to climb out. So it's basically like a series of uh, foot loops. And you tie them on the rope and you step on one and lift up the other one. And then you step in that one and lift up the first one. So you kind of shimmy your way up. Are you on a Prusik the whole time or only when you need? Yeah. So the, the advantage of a Prusik is it allows you basically to tie into the rope if you need to. They're used for two things. They're used to climb up the rope to get out of a crevasse, or if you're setting, building an anchor, like you're one of the guys on top, and you put a snow picket in, then you can tie a prusik to that and tie into the rope. Uh, it, so it, it's like a placeholder in the rope. And so the way we practiced with the prusiks was we went to the park and basically hung the rope over a tree, and then, you know, 
had a person sit there, you know, we would sit there like two, three feet off the ground and have to shimmy, prussic our way all the way up and practice doing that. Now, what's hard is when you fall in and, and none of us fell in. So I can't, you know, I, I've only practiced this and thankfully never had to fully do it. But, you know, everything needs to be tied to you. So if you drop your ice axe, you know, you need your ice axe to get up and down this mountain. If you drop it in the crevasse and it's gone, you're in a really bad spot. So you want to have your ice axe tied to you. You want to be able to take your backpack off, but you can't drop your backpack down the crevasse. So everything kind of needs to be connected and roped in, you know, and we're not used to that here in Colorado. I mean, and so that kind of stuff was what felt most awkward. And it's all the scenarios like in the back of your mind. Now, one of the advantages on the DC route is in a normal year, there's so much traffic and most of that traffic is guided that if you really got in a bad situation, another group's probably probably going to come by in the next five minutes and, you know, can help you out. But there are situations where weather might come in and you could be alone. And so you need to kind of be able to do these things on your own. But most likely someone's going to be able to help you out. So how many hours do you think you practiced on a tree or a swing set? I know Sean told me, he called me the one day he was hanging from his garage uh, trusts, practicing his pressing knots. Yeah, it was fun. I got into the bed of my truck and tied a rope around a rafter in my garage and just jumped out the bed of my truck and hung there. And, you know, it was like maybe, I don't know, four feet above the ground. Was that an attempted suicide or was that a uh, training <laughs> Probably should have been an attempted suicide. But I kind of sat there and then, you know, got the prussics out and was able to climb. The thing that I think really surprised me, because I'm pretty comfortable, I do a lot of rope climbing and I'd used prussics before and repelling and different things. But the thing that surprised me is how much energy climbing up a rope takes, even with a prussic. I mean, it's, yeah. to go six, seven feet, it's pretty exhausting to do that. So I think if you, you know, if you'd fallen, let's say, 25 or 30 feet into a crevasse, um, you would be totally exhausted by the time you got up to the, to the top of that thing. So I think it's good to practice just to see, you know, what it's like, but yeah, thankfully Pat and I didn't have any issues with that. We didn't actually have to use the technique in reality other than practicing it. But uh, I think it's definitely something that should be prepared. And I think Patrick and I, in terms of the self-arrest stuff, I don't know if cavalier is the right word. It probably would have been helpful for us to, you know, have tied in and taken a few falls. I think we were operating under the assumption that like, well, I know how to self-rest myself. I've done that several times. I've practiced that several times. But I think when you add that rope in, um, I, I guess we didn't think about how much that would change the dynamic. So I think, um, you know, I definitely recommend people, you know, go up to St. Mary's Glacier or, really any place there's snow and just, you know, take some falls rope together and just see what the difference is, you know, how much more effort it takes to self rest and that sort of thing. And so your ice axe is always latched to your wrist. Is that correct? Ooh, well, and isn't that the, uh, the question because apparently there's the guide groups, um, on Rainier do not, um, do not allow you to leash your axe. I, you know, we had, we had our axes leashed to us at, at all times. 
And of course, every direction you turn, you're switching your, you know, to your uphill. I was leashed into the front of my harness so that I could switch from right hand, left hand as we were going up. But I think, you know, the question is, the, the debate I would say is that if you are flailing out of control down a mountainside and you have a leashed ice axe, it's going to be bouncing around with you and it could impale you or, you know, I mean, hit you in the face or uh, you could, you could definitely injure yourself. And so the, the point that Pat makes and that I agree with is, you know, what is the bigger risk is the bigger risk that you might fall on your ice axe or you might impale yourself or is the bigger risk that you might, you know, go over a cliff in Colorado or go down a crevasse. Um, and I think from a, guide perspective i mean they usually put on this route they'll put four six we saw a, a couple groups that had eight people on it so when you think about like yeah, i know and they were moving like slower than you can imagine so you know if you think about it from that perspective if you're a guide you have someone it's their first time on the mountain you're thinking like, okay, this person's probably more likely to hurt themselves than to recover their ice axe and make a great move. And they're tied to a rope with so many other people that they're probably not going to go too far or, or too fast. So I can kind of understand in that situation, like, you know, the guides, I, I saw guides with extra ice axes on their packs. So they might just say, okay, we'll lose one. Uh, we'll wow. charge you a ridiculous wow. amount on your credit card. <laughs> And we'll give you another one and you're back down there. But I think once you get into a group of like three guys, you know, the responsibility goes way up. And so if you've got a team of three people and one person drops their ax down a crevasse, you're turning around and you're going back. I mean, because that person is now a liability. You're also probably going to change maybe where you put them in the rope team. I mean, it, it's a, it's a bad situation. And so I think for our group, it just made sense. I'm going down with my ice axe, you know, if it's in my eye or wherever it is, <laughs> I'm going to have it so that I have a chance. Being on a rope team with someone, does it make you appreciate your, your friendship and your reliance on them? Or do you like, you think, still think Sean's an asshole and. Well, I know Sean is an asshole. So yeah. <laughs> I, I already knew that going into it. So. No argument here. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, again, we, you know, with, you know, Stephen, when I've climbed with you or climbed with Sean, I, you, when you find your climbing partner, it's, it's, you're not just finding somebody that's, you know, hiking trails and climbing mountains with you. You're finding somebody that has the same risk tolerance, that has the same thought process uh, when it comes to making decisions and, and, and route finding. And, and everybody's, you know, we always look at each other and we're like, this way, yeah, we, if, if one of us, doesn't want to go we don't go and that and you know from a mountain climbing perspective that's that's what what it is but it's you know it's such a deeper connection it's friendship it's you know you you trust this individual um with your life and then you and and you hope that they're trusting you with theirs and and you don't want to let anybody down and, and that's you know the goal is the same is is to get to the top but the goal is also to get to the bottom and what, you know, safely. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the whole mission and everybody's on the same page. And so, yeah, your climbing partner is, 
that's your that's your best friend in the world at that moment and and maybe beyond that too but it's you know you're looking to each other because you're enjoying it for the same reasons you're hating it for the same reasons so you're sharing in the misery you're sharing in the fun uh you get to see the same views and it's always better with uh you know when you find the right people to climb with no doubt it's beats solo climbing any day yeah i don't don't know how people do rainier with a guide and two other people they have never met because for me those a handful of sketchy spots where you're like right above a crevasse looking down it and you're really feeling that crevasse like pulling you into it i was like man i am so glad patrick's in front of me because i know i can trust this guy you know um and to have strangers i don't know how people do that that takes a whole different level of cajones to trust strangers with your life i sure as i couldn't do it yeah i i always say like here in colorado you know i'll do a class two hike with most people um you know, we, we'll go do Quandary or Beerstat. I'm not going to give you a big uh, application <laughs> before we do that. Um, you know, and then when you move into like some class three peaks, you want it to be someone you know, someone you feel competent in. And then by the time you get to class four and you're looking at Little Bear or Capital, you really want to know this person. Like I'm very selective and I won't climb that with a lot of people. When you go do something like Rainier, it's like a whole nother level. Because as we said, like, you're literally tied to this person. And so I think, you know, the ideal partner, the perfect partner, you know, meets some criteria and it's pretty hard to find. I think the number one thing for me is that they have the skills and the safety and the competence to be up there. That should be a requirement before you tie in with anybody. Um, The second thing is that they have, it's very important that they have a similar level of risk and expectations and that they're willing to play as a group, a team player and and make group decisions and not put their own ego or goals ahead of the rest of their teammates. Um, And then the third one is like someone you like, someone you get along with, someone you enjoy being with. And, you know, it's hard to find all three uh, in a single partner. I feel like I lucked out by, I felt that with my partners, but it definitely put a lot of stress on us because there, there's a level of intimacy. Like, like you're literally tied with this person. Like every step you take is kind of in sync with them. And so when they're frustrated or you know it, you know, and you get to a point where after you've done this enough where you can just look at your partners and you know what they're thinking, you know, you know, if you're going too fast, you know, if they need a break, you just start to really, you're really in tune with everything that they're doing and and without even saying anything. And one of the bizarre things is you're tied to these people. So you're more connected, but you're also distanced because you're never going to go stand right next to them unless you're on a rock, you know? And so it's, it's also like this strange feeling of being a little bit lonely because you're always kind of like yelling and having this like communication with hand signals instead of just like talking to each other right next to each other. So it's a strange experience. So, so you, you can have like the conversation, like argue about the Broncos quarterback and argue about the Steelers 
you have when, and like really sucks a lot of time. You can get in a good flow state where you argue about the Broncos quarterback and Ben Roethlisberger and why they shouldn't have won the playoffs and Antonio Brown's perfect hit and like disappear <laughs> 2000 feet of North Maroon. Like we did. Can you communicate like that when you're 15 feet apart on Rainier? No. And, and like I was in the lead of my group. So I was taking very seriously, like every step, you know, just wondering, like in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, is my next step just going to fall through? You know, am I going to, am I on a snow bridge that's just going to disappear? You know, so when you're in the lead, like, it's a little, you're really focused on like, okay, I got to make every step be a good one. Now, fortunately, when we went, you know, the guides had been leading a lot that summer, there was a flag drought. Um, so I was just kind of following what had already been set and just making sure it was okay. If you're kind of in the middle or the back, you're just kind of following along. So yeah, so there's a little extra pressure to be in front. And, you know, I'm a chatty guy, as you figured out by this point in the podcast. I It was a little lonely up top because there wasn't a conversation going on. And also there wasn't like a bunch of, hey, what do you think? What do you think of this? Does that look good? Should we go this way? Like all those little kind of conversations weren't really happening. Having done Rainier and talking to your own self, who's more extrovert, who likes the conversation which is sometimes the only intelligent conversation i can have i climbed toward abyss with you and we argued politics for most of the above thirteen thousand feet and it sucks away time but how do you how would you say you mentally prepare yourself for an extrovert who uh likes to suck away the suck by having good conversation i there's really there's no time for mental masturbation i mean you have to be really (laughs) focused on where you're going there's not you know every step is pretty much until you get back to camp Muir, every step matters and so you you really need to be focused on it and so it would be really nice to have a conversation and to you know take an hour away and not think about how tired i am or how bad it hurts or how cold i am but but you really can't leave that zone You, you have to be there i don't know what was it like for you guys uh, you said, Pat, you were in the middle and Sean was in the back. Like, you obviously have a different experience. Yeah, actually, Mongoose, I never thought about that before you mentioned it. But looking back on it now, after you said that, it did seem lonely at a lot of times because you were, you know, you're far, you're on this rope, but you're far enough away. And we didn't, we didn't talk very much. And a lot of times I was having these conversations kind of with myself in my head because the only way to talk to Pat was like to yell at him to say like, hey, slow down, we're going around a switchback or whatever. So I, I guess I hadn't realized that till you said that. But yeah, it's definitely, it's a lonelier feeling, even though you are roped in, uh, than on a normal Colorado 14er. Totally agree, man. It was, it, it, it was strange because as you think about all the mountains we've, we've climbed, or backpacking, whatever, it's, there's a lot of conversation going on. You're pretty relaxed. And I'm not gonna say you, you're not relaxed, uh, you know, because everybody's a little different up there when they get on the mountain. But, um, you know, our, the conversation was for the breaks. We took breaks. Yeah, we would catch up and, hey, what did you think about that? Check this out. You know, we'd ask John questions or he'd ask us questions and um, we would, you know, revisit the uh, snow bridge we just walked over and, and ask him why he did what he did and, and 
so you're always, I mean, that's the way I am when I climb, especially when I'm climbing with someone who's, whose ability is, you know, far out, you know, exceeds mine is I'm just trying to absorb and, and I'm always watching, I'm watching, I'm always, I would turn around and look at Sean just to see where the rope was, see how he was doing. And I would look up at John, but yeah, while you're moving, it's total focus. It's business. You're, you're, um, you're focused. You're focused on, on what you're doing one foot in front of the other. You realize that if you, you take that mental moment off that you could cost somebody their life. And, and that's, and you know, that's just the responsibility of being on a rope team or just mountaineering in general. The same thing if you're climbing a steep section on North Maroon or, or pyramid and you have a ton of people below you, it's cat feet across the, the loose rocks. You know, you're, you're, you're mindful of, of where you're putting your feet and, and what's in front of you, what's behind you and around you. And, um, but yeah, and when you take your stop and you have your break, then, you know, take a, take a break and, and chat and, and remember why you're doing it. And that's kind of how I approached it. But yeah, it was very quiet as, as when you're moving. It's just the wind in your ears and the, the crunch of your, uh, the snow under your uh, crampons. And so how would you compare it then if you had to rebuild Rainier with every section on any Colorado 14er? I think the, um, really the only, I think the, the hike up to Camp Muir is going to feel like a snow climb that you might do on a average Colorado 14er in snow conditions. Um, and then I think uh, if you're lucky enough to do the cleaver, the disappointment cleaver without snow, that's going to feel pretty similar to, you know, uh, a steeper section of looser rock, maybe in the elk someplace. But it, a lot of the actual glacier travel at least in my opinion, doesn't compare to anything that you will ever do in Colorado. The crevasses are gigantic. And the snow bridges, I mean, <laughs> one snow bridge Pat and I and John Clot crossed. I swear to God, that thing was maybe five inches thick. I mean, I, I thought for sure we were going to fall through that thing. It was so thin. And then the Seracs are, I mean, the one Serac was like the, the, the size of three school buses. Just this huge block of rock that was ready to fall. What's so I think the shot, sorry, what's a Ciroc? It's a big chunk of um, ice that has kind of broken away and is still kind of hanging on the onto the glacier barely. Just kind of like it's like a a, a, bowl, a boulder of ice waiting to fall at any minute if it melts out enough. So I felt that the objective hazards were much greater. I felt a, a level of um, a lack of control over the situation that I hadn't felt on a Colorado 14er. Cause like, okay, you have the elk range where it's loose and yeah, there's loose rock and stuff can happen. But most of the time you feel pretty much in control if you take your time and you're careful, but especially like coming down in the, uh, towards the afternoon on Rainier, you look up these Seracs and it's like, okay, if it, if that thing melts out right now, there's nothing we can do no matter how much experience we have, it's going to take us out and kill us. And same thing with like the snow bridge, like, okay, if that thing decides to break right now, no amount of experience is going to get us out of that situation. So I, th I thought the level of objective risk was much higher than most 14ers. And yeah, very different experience, which I think for me, that's what made it so cool is I hadn't experienced anything like it 
in uh, either the Colorado 14ers or in the Utah 13ers that I've done. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I found the mountain to be very humbling because I, I mean, after you've finished the 14ers and you've done, I don't know, a dozen or so winter peaks, like you start to kind of feel like, okay, I got this. I know what to expect. And on Rainier, it was just like a whole nother world. You know, the first thing I think you notice is during the day, there's these little avalanches, rock falls, and the entire mountain shakes, like the ground under you shakes. And there, I've, you just never feel anything like that. Um, you know, and so you're hiking up the Muir snowfield and the glacier right next to you, just something big lets loose in the middle of the day and it's shaking or you fall asleep in your tent and you wake up because the mountain's moving and you just, you kind of immediately have that feeling like, oh man, this is, this is a different world here. And so it's very, it, I found it to be very humbling. Like nothing comes easy. You're doing 9,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, you're really kind of out of your element. And that's really what makes it so cool is you're bringing everything you have to this and you're thinking like, am I good enough? Are we going to get through this? Are we going to make it? And so I think you come back to Colorado with a bigger perspective of being like, you know, there's a whole nother world out there. And, you know, the mountaineering that we have here is awesome, but it's only, it's a portion of all the mountaineering that's out there. And so when you go to Rainier, you start to realize like, wow, there's this whole other world. And then there's bigger mountains like Denali and, and the seven summits and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, I came back very humble and not as big of a deal as I thought I was when I left on the trip, I guess. <laughs> well, let me ask you a different question then. Are you more proud of summit of Rainier or any other 58, 14 year summits? You, you mean like Rainier versus Capital or Rainier versus Little Bear? Yep. I would definitely Rainier. I, I would say, I mean, I think a fair to get into a debate in my mind would be like Rainier versus the 10 hardest 14ers or something like that, you know, because yeah, it was, it was worlds different than, than any single peak. I thought, what'd you guys think? I think actually, I, I disagree with Mongoose for me personally. I think Rainier was an amazing achievement. Um, but I think the fact that we had, this, you know, John with us is really experienced, you know, John's done Rainier like 30 sometimes, I think. So I think that took away, you know, he was kind of the leader. And so, you know, that took away some of the challenges that otherwise Patrick and I would have had to face. And so um, because of that, it didn't feel perhaps as much of an achievement because someone else was taking most of the risk. He, you know, he found the route, he did all the route finding, he, you know, basically um, took us up that thing. So for me, I, I still think, for me, the Maroon Bells, that's my proudest achievement. Uh, whenever I see a photo of the Bells, it just, I, I, my heart fills with pride. Part of it is because I did that solo. When you're by yourself and you're really struggling with your own demons, in addition to the mountain, I think that makes a big difference. So yeah, I think for me, Rainier is still a very proud accomplishment, but it wouldn't be my like biggest mountaineering accomplishment. What about uh, Holy Cross? I mean, you, you did Halo Ridge and a route that 
it feels like the Bermuda Triangle of 14ers by yourself. Yeah, but I don't know. Halo Ridge is relatively easy, you know, most ways. I didn't, I think that's, that was a cool route for other reasons. I think seeing the cross from um, Notch Mountain is a spiritual experience like no other. But I didn't think it was like, in terms of like being proud of my accomplishment, I didn't think that was as big as, you know, any of the Elks. The Elks for me, I mean, Rune Bells for me would be tops. Um, and I know different people have different experiences in terms of which is harder and easier. But for me, it'd be like the Bells and then probably Capital and then probably Pyramid and then Snowmass. Those, those, having done those, I feel like I can die very proud of my achievements in mountaineering. Hmm. So Rainier, Rainier's between Stomass, North Maroon, Rainier's below yeah, would, all the Alps? I would say it's probably, I would say maybe the Maroon Bells, then Capital, then Rainier, before Pyramid maybe. Hmm. And then Stomass after Pyramid. Nick brought up something earlier about, you know, if you, if you come from the, the Pacific Northwest, you know, climbing Mount Rainier might not be what climbing capital is. Or if you come from Colorado, uh, vice versa. And if you're from the Himalayas, of course, you're, you're laughing. But, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I'm very proud of, of Rainier. I had a great time. I, I kind of look at every mountain summit as, as its own individual, uncomparable thing. And that's probably pretty you know, stupid or cliche or, or whatever, but it, you know, even Mount Sherman versus Mount Rainier to me, it's, it's, I just take it for what it is. And my crowning achievement, I, you know, I, I'm just happy to be able to get up them, you know, with, you know, with you guys, or if I'm solo or if I'm taking, you know, somebody for the first time or my wife or, um, I'm just so happy up there. It, it's hard for me to compare any of them really. I mean, it's, Mount Rainier is not like anything in Colorado. I don't think there's anything I could compare it to. And, and Capitol, again, is, is not, not comparable to Mount Rainier because there's, there's nothing on either mountain that resembles the other, and, except for the fact that you're, you know, you're climbing a mountain and you have your partners and, and your friends and you know, one foot in front of the other. So I think it's to, you know, to each their own. Everybody's going to take it in. Uh, I think Mount Rainier was definitely a little more spiritual uh, to me than uh, a lot of the Colorado peaks. Um, but I grew up here and I grew up climbing them. So it's, you know, maybe it's, it's just the familiarity versus something that I'm not familiar with. So the adventure was, was different. Uh, our little bear adventure, you know, Sean and I, 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 I would compare those two probably more uh, than anything. That's a good question. Good. Would you rather climb the Southwest Ridge of Little Bear through the bushwhacking or fly to Seattle and climb Rainier? Uh, well, Rainier in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would go back to Rainier and climb a different route, the Ammons route, or, or you know, in a heartbeat. I would, I would, um, Little Bear, the route we did, I, I would never do that ever again. <laughs> Period. I want to use that little bear route on my worst enemy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was funny because Patrick and I, after, you know, we, so we, we summited Rainier, we came down, we found a hotel, we drank beer. And then that next day we, we drove around all of Rainier, you know, we went East and up around it. And we just, it was great. Cause we kept stopping at all these little turnouts. Like, Oh, look at, look, like we can climb that glacier. Like next time we come here, we climb up that glacier instead of this glacier. And, so uh, I think it's something like 
I'm kind of excited. I'd like to go back to Rainier because there's so many different routes that you can do and they're, they all look totally amazing and diverse. So that's kind of neat too. Steph, the one thing I wanted to say um, earlier that I didn't have a chance to jump in on was about the, you know, the, when we were talking about ice axes, whether you, you leash or don't leash. The thing that I found very interesting, and I think Pat will corroborate this, when you're on a Colorado 14er using an ice axe, you maybe use the ice axe for 10, 15 minutes, if that, and you kind of use it in a half-ass way. You're not really plunging the ice axe in deeply. You're kind of, you know, maybe every third step you're plunging it in. Whereas Rainier, every step you take, you are plunging that ice axe deep into the snow so that you're self-anchored. And so Pat and I on the way down, we're both like, man, our shoulders are killing us because you're not used to plunging that ice axe in over and over again. So that was really a, kind of an interesting thing. And then the other thing about ice axes is anyone who's going to Rainier, make sure you pack a couple days before your trip because ice axes take up a ton of room in your baggage. Like I barely fit mine in my backpack that I took. So make sure you have a strategy for fitting in ice axe into your backpack, unless you rent it in Washington, but you know, fitting it in and also safely because you know, uh, your ice axe can cut through your backpack and damage your luggage. So that's something to think about too. Yeah. Packing everything was kind of fun because you're, uh, we flew Southwest. Were you guys on Southwest or were you on something else? Yeah, Southwest. I was. Southwest gives you two bags, but um, the only thing that you can't bring is your fuel stove um, or your stove. The, yeah, the fuel for your stove. Um, so we had to stop by REI and pick that up, but it's very strange <laughs> when you have a bag that has all your mountaineering stuff in it. So you got ice axe and carabiners and that things like you see them kind of looking and x-raying it and it just looks like you're thinking like, Oh man, we're going to get pulled aside. You check your bag, but that stuff's, uh, that stuff's really weighs a lot, you know? So you can't, you start off by putting all your mountaineering gear in one bag. And then you realize that that weighs like 60 pounds. So then you have to like <laughs> start mixing in your clothes, with your stuff. And it, I don't know. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of fun. And then you then you're like, am I forgetting everything? What can I carry on the plane, et cetera, et cetera? But it was cool. But I mean, you guys got off the plane, grabbed your bag, drove there, and started hiking up the mountain. I want to know, did you like pull like airline peanuts like out of your pocket? We we stopped at Qdoba in the airport, slammed a burrito, and then stopped at a store on the way out and got more food and coffee, Gatorade, you name it. And that was that was it, you know. Did you have a few bars. Hydrate meals or what? What was your strategy? So four points. Four points bars. Yeah, no, we definitely had a few of those. Um, you know, I think the one thing that stands out with Rainier and a little different is, you know, when you get up there, yeah, we did our we did our dehydrated meals, and and you have one of those for dinner. We packed an extra one just in case. You never know. You always go prepared to stay, you know, another night on the mountain. If, you know, God forbid, but, but Rainier was like, it was different to me because I, I eat and drink so much when I'm, when I'm climbing just regular or backpacking, whatever it is, I'm just always inhaling food and water. And, um, on Rainier, you know, you tune algenes 
and or hydropacks and you know in my case and uh, you fill those in and that was those were enough to get me up and down some a day and you're just snacking the whole way every time you stop a few sips of water a few bites of food off you go a few bites of water, you know so yeah we did the the high dehydrated meal you think about it's 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 snack food but you're going up I mean, we were going up so quick and, and back that you know i started to rethink like i could take some some better food <laughs> i don't have to take just bars nothing against you know bars but um and it's cold enough too you know you could actually you can get creative if you're willing to carry the weight stifler you'll you'll appreciate this it might be the only trip that i have ever or will ever do with patrick in which my pack was lighter than his <laughs> no way so yes. there was no there's no quart of wine and a uh, waffle maker. <laughs> yep, I was very, I was very, uh, you know, uh, attentive to the weight on this trip, which I, I'm usually not. He left the cast iron uh, skillet and teapot down at the bottom and the and bottle of the the Yukon iron. Jack. Oh, champagne. Yeah, <laughs> the Yukon Jack with a glass bottle. Jack. Of I want to end the podcast with a conversation about what you would tell other people from Colorado on doing Rainier, whether that's what to pack, what to train for, what to, how many days to set their airplane tickets for, what would you really tell people doing Rainier from Colorado? I, I would say that if you've made it this far in the podcast, um, you're, it's something that you're interested <laughs> in and you should definitely go do it. And, you know, if you feel like, I don't know if this is in my wheelhouse. I don't know if I have the right partners, you know, then go do a guided trip. They'll teach you everything you need to know. There's, I think there's three guided groups, um, RMI. Um, I don't remember what the other two are, but uh, they have everything from like a three day climb to like a week long kind of training class. They actually have like Denali training classes where you go up and you stay at Camp Muir and you learn different skills and maybe summon on one day. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different options. And I'm like, if you're interested in going, I think you should definitely go, you know, and, and if you're new to climbing in Colorado and you're not quite sure, like I said, just take a guide and do it more as a class and you'll learn a lot of skills. Or if you've climbed a lot and, you know, we have some good partners, then start planning out your trip. I'm going to plug my, I wrote a trip report written by Mongoose and I talk about like every book I read, every, try to go through all the details of where we took our class and everything, but it's just such an amazing adventure. And if it's calling to you, you should go do it um, because it's really an incredible trip. And there's so many resources now, and especially with like YouTube videos and trip reports that like all the information you need is available. And then just committing the time to it, um, you know, to setting aside a week to go do it and all the time it takes to learn the skills. It's really cool. Um, so I'd recommend it. My, I guess my advice is if you're in that category, do it. You know, it, it's not that different. I mean, it's 9,000 feet of elevation. So, you know, just think about that. Like if you can do, but a lot of it's at lower elevation. So I, I don't know if you can do a four or 5,000 foot day here in Colorado, I think you can handle a 9,000 foot day up there. All I can say is don't underestimate the endurance 
for a climb like that because it's a serious climb. There's a reason they use it as a warm up for Everest at 9,000 feet at Vistures and, and those, you know, legendary climbers, they use that as their warm up, And that's why is because that is 9,000 feet from the parking lot to the summit. Just to echo what Mongo said, if you have an interest in it coming from Colorado, you should do it. It will expand your concept of what mountaineering is. It will introduce you to, you know, this, this immense diversity of glacier travel. And it's not anything you can't do. I think, you know, in terms of acclimatization, you know, if you're, if you're doing 14 years in Colorado, you're not really going to have a problem with it. Uh, I think, you know, I felt really slow uh, last maybe 1,500, 1,300 feet on Rainier, but we were still passing people. <laughs> so, um, you know, I felt you know, pretty, pretty strong compared to a lot of the uh, other people climbing Rainier. So it's definitely something that you can do. And I think my um, two cents on preparation, other than, you know, climbing as much as you can, doing the 14ers as much as you can, uh, get a copy of Freedom of the Hills and read the, the chapters on glacier travel and, you know, understand, you know, self-arrest, try to practice that, understand prisics, try to practice that, you know, that's really going to help you out and it's going to give you a sense of confidence when you're up there. I would just add that we have, um, here in Colorado, we have three peaks that are taller than Mount Rainier. And then you got Mount Whitney and California's number one. And then Rainier comes in as number five in the contiguous U.S. So you, you've all been higher than Rainier. 